In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, and welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we talk about how to navigate life in the light of faith. In our podcast, in general, we try to put different issues that we as Catholics and people living in our time and place, we try to put different issues on the table here and examine them in the light of faith and bring you experts um, who can help us uh, look, look at, take the ancient truths that we guard in the Catholic Church and apply them to our lives in the modern day and age. The issue that we're going to talk about today is something very near and dear to my heart um, as a mother um, and as a convert, and that is the issue of psychology in general and mental health and how um, our mental health and our spiritual health and even our bodily health is all tied together in who we are as human persons. Our guest today, I'm very excited uh, and, and proud. Uh, it's, it's definitely a matter of divine providence to introduce you to our guest today. His name is Dr. Jeff Thompson. Hello, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank Hello. you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. So I, I need to tell everybody about who you are and, and kind of like what led to this point, because I, I think it is um, a really neat testimony to the holy use of social media. <laughs> um, so I can't remember how long ago it was exactly, but um, back in the day when I was writing a lot about faith and science, I met Jeff um, through Facebook, and um, we we started a conversation about the things I was just saying about spiritual, mental, bodily, because as a chemist who's kind of, I think I'm always going to be recovering from materialism. I don't know if I'll ever quite get there because I, I have to actually work at not thinking of people as atoms and molecules. Um, it wreaks <laughs> havoc on all my, my relationships. <laughs> But I, I try very hard at that. I'm very interested in the unity of the human person, and I'm interested in um, how we unite the spiritual and the physical in our lives. Um, and then as a mother, I, I'm very interested in the, the psychology thing because I, I want to know how to help my own children and help myself and help my family as we navigate life in the light of faith. So Jeff has done some amazing work um, in tying together uh, his, his expertise in psychology with his spirituality. And so let me just kind of tell you a little bit about his path. He's a licensed mental health counselor in Yakima, Washington. 
with a master's in divinity and in counseling psychology. But he most recently in 2018 completed a PhD in pastoral psychology. Is that right, Jeff? A PhD in pastoral psychology. And he did his thesis on St. John of the Cross. Um, And he's got some fascinating conclusions. I mean, when you get a PhD, you have to contribute some kind of new knowledge to your field. And the the area he ended up going into is fascinating. And um, Jeff is now getting ready to teach a course, several courses in several places, um, particularly at uh, Dan Burke's Avila Institute. He's going to be teaching a course on this. So um, in the podcast today, it's a chance for all of you to get to know what Jeff is talking about, get to know Jeff as well. And, you know, hey, we're going to tell you at the end, if you want to know more about um, what he's teaching, tell you how to figure that out. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure to be here. It, it's really, it's amazing that we're at this point now, because I know, was it back in, how many years ago was it that we met through Facebook? <sighs> Well, I want to say at least seven or eight, maybe even a little longer. Yeah. You were you were writing a blog on science and faith, and that it came up in a search I did, and then I looked you up on Facebook. Yep. And and you've written this thesis. So can you tell us a little bit about? Give us the short version of uh, your your thesis, the title of it, why you chose that, and what you're interested in. Um, this is fascinating to hear you talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, St. John of the Cross was important to me even before I became Catholic in 2011. And I go back at least to 1989, 1990. And so I would start reading him. And I feel like it has taken me 20 years to begin to understand him. He is just so rich. He talks a lot, though, about attachments, our attachments, um, and the things that really get in our way of moving towards divine union, just a communion with with God and Christ. As a therapist, early on in my career, I started learning more and more about attachment and attachment disorders and all of the problems that attachment disorders can cause in a person's development creating all kinds of psychological obstacles to their growth to spiritual health. And just letting John and attachment theory, among other things, just really be in conversation in my head. Um, When I got to the point of being able to write a dissertation for the PhD, I just, I knew what I needed to write about. Um, All the stuff that had been percolating for so long, I needed to dive into it find ways to bring St. John of the Cross and what's called affective neuroscience or the, the, the brain science of our emotional and social connections together. And so that was, that was the dissertation in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's beautiful. I mean, can you, whenever you start talking about attachments, I mean, I, I know we've had this conversation before, but I think a lot of um, parents who were having kids in the early 2000s and 1900s, like I was, um, you think of attachment parenting. 
that whole yes. um, discussion because I remember reading those books and um, sleeping with my babies, even though <laughs> doctors mm-hmm. were saying don't do that. Um, but I was I was very yeah. careful to be attached. But but there's just I remember having a thought when I was converting to that there's something if you don't form healthy attachments when you're very like God made us this way. God made us to be in communion and in relationship. And and those children who don't form healthy attachments early on, which I think happens a lot because people are turning away from God, the children that don't form healthy attachments early on get broken and they grow up and then you see that brokenness propagating you know, it's, it's like original sin, but you, you see the brokenness propagating into broken families and broken communities yeah. and broken nations. And it, it just comes from a very primal place of, uh, of things that just don't go right in infancy. And that's a lot to get your head around. I mean, t- can say more about that, that infancy and the importance of attachments. Um. It's just absolutely critical, and I come at this from, as a therapist, as a researcher, but also as a parent. Uh, I, both of my children are adopted internationally, and so a lot of my understanding of attachment, a lot of my questions about attachment issues came from there. There's a program in Spokane called the Circle of Security Program, and I usually use that to really frame this. If you imagine a mother and young child, two, three, maybe four, at a park. You know, the mother's on the park bench. The child is wanting to run out to the playground. It moves away from the mother, but then looks back at her. Am I okay? Are you okay with what I'm doing? And the mother will probably signal yes or no you know, in some way, and the child will respond. Uh, if you imagine, you know, out of the bushes by the playground, you know, a, a a bee flies out at the child and scares the child. It immediately runs back to the mother and the mother welcomes the child and, and cares for it and helps the child to uh, feel its feelings, but also level out those feelings, mm-hmm. uh, give words to those feelings. Oh, that bee really scared you, didn't it? That mean bee. You can just imagine how that circle then is supposed to develop security in the child the security of I'm able to move away from my mother and explore and develop, but if I and she supports that, but if I need my mom, I turn around and she's there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the circle of security. Now, unfortunately, in, in a lot of relationships for a lot of different reasons, uh, and I'm saying the mother, broadly speaking, this would also apply to fathers grandparents, aunts, uncles, all the major people in a child's life. Mm-hmm. So this is not about making the mother responsible for everything, but just for the sake of illustration. Yeah. The, the, sometimes the mother is uncomfortable with the child moving away from her, that when the child needs to explore and develop, uh, the, the mother feels abandoned. And so the child gets the message, stay close to mom. You know, it's almost a role reversal. She needs to take care of mom's feelings. Uh, And that creates insecurity of one kind, um, kind of an enmeshment almost. Mm -hmm. The 
at other times, a mother might be uncomfortable with the child coming close, feeling fearful herself. I don't know if I can meet this child's needs or I'm preoccupied with my own needs. Mm -hmm. And so the child gets the message, keep your distance, manage your own feelings, take care of your own problems. Um, Those are the types of insecurity that can develop. So in adult relationships, and this has been shown again and again, most of us have a need for closeness or a need for distance. And unfortunately, in a lot of marriage relationships, for example, you get one of each and the the pursued and pursuer uh, dynamic starts taking over. That really goes back to the fundamental understanding of relationships that a child develops by about age one. That's attachment in a nutshell. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I think that strikes at something deep in all of us. We're all thinking about how um, how that how how much we were like that child, or how much we were like the mother yes. on the bench, um, trying to protect out. I, you know, I could even what you're just explaining right there. I can see that having a lot of power in evangelization. I mean, I almost said evangelical mm-hmm. power, but I mean, I mean, power in reaching someone who's searching for truth, but hasn't found God yet. Um, to, I mean, tie that in what you're saying now. I could take a stab at it, but you could say it better than I can. <laughs> tie that into spirituality and Christ and the Holy Trinity and I guess, or any of those, or particularly St. John of the Cross, like how, do, how does that fit into the spiritual now? Well, I'm going to go outside of the science into my own, the Jeff Thompson theory. Okay. There was a study, a sociological study at Baylor University oh, 10, 12 years ago that came out with uh, re- results that were fascinating about America's four gods. And they found that it, that people's understanding, when they say or hear the word God, they actually meant four broadly different things. Hmm. Uh, some people felt like God is a judge, kind of a classic problem. Some people felt like God is a doting grandfather, just patting us on the head, and you know everybody's okay, no, no such thing as sin, just going to do nice things for us. Others felt that uh, God is just basically standing back with his arms across his chest, shaking his hands back and forth, criticizing but not doing anything. And then there's the distant God, the uh, just, yeah, he got the clockworks going and then walked away, kind of the deist's understanding of God. And that those four understandings of God – could predict almost where you lived in the country for one thing. There were clusters all around the country. Really? Fascinating study all by itself, yes. But here's where the Jeff Thompson theory comes in. Um, I have a sense, and it would probably be worth testing, um, that people's attachment style play right into their understandings of God. If they had an insecure attachment that was more distant with their parent, lo and behold, they have an understanding of God as distant. Mm-hmm. If they had an enmeshed relationship with their, their parent, 
then their understanding of God goes that direction into just really emotional instability. Mm-hmm. If they had an abusive parent, they probably have a strong sense of God as judge or are more likely to. Um, or if they had a very critical parent who just was never satisfied with them, lo and behold, their understanding of God either follows that or maybe flips and they try to conceive of God in exactly the opposite ways. So that was just the basis of my sense that it was worth studying attachment from a psychological perspective and from a spiritual perspective, because a lot of people's understanding of God really seems to be fundamentally affected by how they learned about basic relationships. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how often parents stop to think, to ask their kids, you know, what, what do you think of your relationship with God? Like, how do you, I'm thinking about that. I want to go home right now and ask my kids what they think, <laughs> how they think yeah, God is. I think I will too. Because <laughs> I'm going to be taking notes. Um, yes. but, you know, but seriously, that might be a very useful exercise to ask your kids, you know, name those four categories. What more fits your, um, your, how you imagine God to be or your, how, what more fits yeah. you? what you think your relationship with God is um, yeah. because it, you know, not in a sense that, Oh, now I can see what my kid thinks about me, but more so you can, as a parent, give the child what the child's needing um, to heal your relationship yes. with your child and to heal your child's relationship or to maybe prevent any bad relationships with God. Um, I'm speaking of parents who are worried about their teenagers turning away from the faith, which I know we all go through that. Um, Huge. Yeah. Yes. I mean, if you imagine a mother holding her baby, and again, I'm not picking on mother, it's just an illustration, Mm -hmm. but uh, something like 85 to 90% of mothers will cradle their babies on their left arm. Really? And look down look down at the baby. Yeah, and this seems to cross all cultures as well. Uh, It seems to be very instinctive that a mother will cradle her baby and baby's head on on her left arm in the crook of her arm. And it seems, and here's where the the neuroscience studies come in, and I won't get into all all the details of that other than to say it looks like the the baby's field of vision is the mother's face. Mm-hmm. They can, their vision in, the, in early infancy extends about as far as the mother's face yeah. being held in her left arm. And at a deeper level, um, the baby is born with a functioning right hemisphere of the brain, which is more the social, emotional connectedness mm-hmm. side of the brain. Um, the left side of the brain that speaks and uses logic, um, thinks in linear terms, analytical terms, obviously that's not even close to online yet. But the right brain is ready to go for the most part. It's ready to connect, I should mm-hmm. say. Yeah. And it seems that when, if, when the mother is holding the baby up in her left arm, her right brain, her social, emotional, connecting, union, unifying right brain is mm-hmm. connecting to the baby's right brain, or not. 
and um, and the baby's whole field of vision is mother's face. So the first understanding of a godlike figure for an infant is going to be that face and what it reads there with its right brain, not its logical linguistic brain, its intuitive, instinctive feeling brain. What it sees in that face, more or less consistency. Now, the good news is for all the parents and mothers out there that are starting to feel really guilty about how they didn't hold their babies right or something like that. <laughs> the good the good news is that um, babies can really tell the difference between mom having an off day and mom really being not good for me. Mm-hmm. They can tell the difference. So making mistakes is not what we're talking about here. And all of us parents, at least neurotic ones like I was, uh, you know, just convinced that every mistake was going to be the one that landed one of my kids on a therapist's couch someday. I just knew it. But the good news is the kids know how to give us a break and know when we're making a mistake, especially when we're able to repair it. Mm-hmm. But that right brain development coming on in that first year of life through, through the first three to five years of life, that right brain is the primary development. I'm learning about relationships. I'm learning about safety. I'm learning about what I can uh, do and what I need to do in certain situations. And is that mother, that caregiver going to be supportive of my exploration and of my need for safety and, and emotion regulation? Those feelings are pretty much in place by the end of the first year of life, and they tend to hold into adulthood and adult relationships. And I would say, to answer your first question, our spiritual relationships, it's probably, it probably has a very powerful effect on our conception of God or a universal force or whatever it is that somebody comes to. Yeah. I know in your work, you take that, um, you take that stuff in infancy then and you bring it into attachment disorders. Um, yes. And when, when I hear the word attachment disorders, I mean, attachment parenting, I think of when you're raising your babies, but then attachment mm-hmm. disorders comes to my mind, things like um, addic- obviously alcohol and drug addiction, but also yes. any addiction, even addiction to food, even um other attachment disorders like uh, cutting and um, yes, just because uh, yeah, I remember, I mean, my I I was a mother bef- as a materialist before I was a, a Catholic, and I remember looking back once I understood the human soul, like what divine revelation taught us about the human person, body and rational mm-hmm. soul, made for communion with each other and mm-hmm. with God. Um, I remember looking back on my oldest child's um, childhood and thinking, you know, when I was a, a feminist, I didn't call myself feminist or materialist or atheist. I just didn't care about God or bigger questions. I only cared about getting my Ph.D. in chemistry and getting a job and buying a car and just very materialistic things. Um, but I remember when I had my daughter and I was single as a mother um, I just had this in my mind that what you have to do with your children if you're a successful woman is 
you you get your PhD, you put them in daycare, you pick them up after daycare, you go to the grocery store and push them around, you bring them home, you put food in front of them, you set them in front of the TV, you bathe them, you put them to bed, you get up and do it all over again, and you're checking all the boxes yeah. and being a good mother. Um, right. And I didn't even have the language as as a materialist. I didn't even have the language for a relationship. And I do know, I mean, I, I mean, my daughter is now 31 years old and she's a wonderful mother with five children herself. And I'm very proud of her. And she actually is, is a, a caseworker and a, and a counselor that helps women with addictions and mental health dual wow. di- diagnoses. Um, she's a superhero. But I remember looking back at all that and thinking that broken attachment early in life when I was just moving her through the emotions and very busy with my own career and stuff, I can see how that breaks the person. And it it creates a vacuum that when the child gets older, she's trying to fill in unhealthy relationships and unhealthy um, attachments to, to things. But it's all trying to fill this hole that she doesn't even know where it comes from. Um, and I, I'm just using our example um, because it's got a happy ending. But um, I think there's a lot to that. And you, when you talk about yes. attachment disorders, that's what I'm thinking about. Yes, if our attachment is insecure or even broken early on, it creates that vacuum in us. And... Our desperate need to be loved mm-hmm. is then just this gigantic open open wound and an open question. Can I be loved? Will I be loved? Mm-hmm. And when those questions are there, and this is where it, what spills into addiction research, one of the first books I read in psychology was a book by Dr. Gerald May called Addiction and Grace, and it's still... It's a little bit outdated scientifically, but it's not a science book. It really is about how God works in us uh, in these very areas. And without talking about attachment research, he talked a lot about attachments, Mm -hmm. addictions as attachments that uh, uh, nail our soul, apparently, uh, trying to find the quote for you, the... um, addiction attaches desire bonds and enslaves the energy of desire to certain specific behaviors things or people these objects of attachment then become preoccupations and obsessions they come to rule our lives mm-hmm. and so what he's suggesting there is that when we enter older childhood adolescence adulthood with these open wounds we desperately look for something that will either numb the pain Mm-hmm. or make us happy. Sometimes that can be something as benign as somebody who eats too much chocolate or uh, watches you know, too much television. Uh, that can be as savage as an all-out addiction, capital A, to, to certain hard drugs. I don't, I, I, want to, I don't want to equate chocolate and methamphetamines mm-hmm other than to say there's a continuum there of I'm trying to either numb my pain or make myself happy or both. And that that 
I'm suggesting is a direct that's directly connected to the wounds I emerged from childhood with, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So um, addiction becomes then the psychological concept out of the psychological concept of attachment that actually then stretches right into the spiritual very quickly. And that's where John of the Cross comes in, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're we're all since no one's perfect, no family's perfect, no parent is perfect, and, and we're all a little bit broken at least. Um, yes. And, and that's what the virtue of temperance teaches us is, you know, because you practice the virtue of prudence first in the context of faith, hope, and love, when you practice the virtue of temperance, you're being honest with yourself about why you're having that bar of chocolate. <laughs> Um, for example, right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm ha- right. I mean, cause I think it's perfectly legitimate to sometimes say I'm having this bar of chocolate because I'm in pain right now. <laughs> and, you know, but you're, but you yeah. know what you're doing, <laughs> you know, I, I'm having this yeah. because I'm, I'm having an attachment pain. Um, but yeah, but then certainly right. if you, if, if that comes to dominate you and, and you're not in control of your choice to have that bar of chocolate, but rather it's that attachment to that chocolate to fill your needs, then it's, it's flipped over. It's not healthy anymore, but get, get to the part about St. John of the cross. Well, uh, what caught my eye early on reading John was especially in the ascent of Mount Carmel, he talks about attachments. Um, I don't speak Spanish, but using some bilingual friends and, uh, uh, some pastors in my area, I tried to dig into this, and uh, attachments comes from a Spanish word, um, affecciones, affections. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we attached to but the things we have most affection for? So John sees these in the ascent of Mount Carmel as all of the different chains whether it's a heavy chain or a light chain, he says. He gives a picture of a bird that has a small chain or a heavy chain around its foot, still not going to fly. And we were meant to fly. We were meant to fly up to God as the one creature in the entire universe of God's creation that can be both divine and material and to be the bridge between the divine and the material. We are meant to fly to this God who has made us and to bring creation with us. These attachments ensnare us, chain us, bind us to earth so that we cannot fly. And so the ascent of Mount Carmel, it's not an easy read. Um, I wouldn't suggest somebody just jump to that book and dive in and expect to really get everything out of it that they can. It, it really does take time. But the essence of it is identifying these things that we're attached to that are probably replacements for and attempts to fill the vacuum, replacements for early wounds um, and our attempts to fill that vacuum with something that will numb pain Mm -hmm. or make us happy. We're essentially talking about addictions, Mm -hmm. the things that distract us, the things that hold us, the things that keep our attention, things that we give energy to. John goes through a long series of chapters on what those attachments do 
to us. He calls them sensory attachments. Mm-hmm. Um, our senses that are, are stimulated uh, by things we see, things we hear, things we touch, smell, taste. And those eventually start turning into the seven capital sins, famous from, from theology, uh, and they bind us down. So moving through what John calls the dark night, I'll need to spend a moment on that when we have a moment, uh, but this journey through um, our own darkness and the darkness of, of uh, feeling distant from, hidden from God, uh, becomes our way to salvation, ultimate salvation, because we're being freed from these things that bind us. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. I mean, I, I, uh, I said one time. I mean, I, I've got seven kids and six grandkids, and and I'm still at age fifty-one. I'm still like. God, I was open to life, and nobody told me it was going to be this hard <laughs> because <Right. laughs> it is hard. Um, it's just so hard. Like you would think after parenting for 31 years uh, with so many kids, I would, I would know something about being a mother. I feel like, I, I feel like all, all I know is how much I never knew in the first place. And yeah. Um, but I was saying I last year, it, it, it is hard, parents. Those of you with little kids, it, you know, enjoy the days where your biggest problems are changing diapers and finding pacifiers. Right. <laughs> um, but, enjoy, you know, enjoy your days with your babies is what I mean to say. But yes. I said something last sure. year. It, something hit me last year. Um, I was getting ready to do a series of talks with Bishop Strickland on faith within the family for his bishop's annual appeal last year. And I always like to just find one line of what I'm trying to say, because then I can just talk for 30 minutes about that one line. Um, that's kind of how I structure my talks. But it, it was this, all, all families are broken. All relationships are broken because we're not the Trinity. We, we don't, like when, when, the, when theology says, God the Father gives all of himself to the Son except to be the Son, and they're one substance, one divine nature, but still those are two mm-hmm. different persons and the Holy Spirit's the third person. They're perfect yes. union, perfect unity, but we are never going to have perfect unity with any of our human relationships. However, we long for it because we're made in the image yes. and likeness of God. And so with my husband, with my friends, with my parents, with my children, the pain in those relationships is because I'm always keenly aware that they're not that perfect union like God is. And I know that, but if you, if you don't focus on that and you focus on all the good stuff that is united, you can focus on what's good in your relationship. And then the thing I said, see, I'm talking, I'm going to talk 30 minutes just about trying to tell you what the one line was. The, The thing that hit me from our faith is that, yeah, accept it. There's brokenness in all our relationships. If you want to heal, I, I titled the talk of how to heal all discord in your family is <laughs> a lofty title. But wow. if you want to heal yes. the discord in your family, you have to get on your knees in front of the Holy Eucharist, Christ himself, and you have to heal your relationship with your creator and redeemer first. 
Yes. You have to say, Christ, I'm yours. God, you know, let it be done to me according to your will. And you have to heal that relationship first. And, th- and only then do you have a prayer of healing your relationships with other human beings. And you may never heal them completely, but with that grace of clarity and vision, you'll at least start to understand why it hurts so much when they're not perfect. And I mean, that that helped me in my relationship with, especially with my husband, because all I could see was the things I, the bad things I would focus on. And, and I, I really literally had to, people say this all the time, I, I had to pray that I could see him the way God sees him. And I could see my children the way God sees them. And the only way I could get to that point was to get on my knees myself and heal my relationship with Christ. And so that was like the whole point of what I was saying. You talk about therapy, and that was a very dark night for me. You're, you were saying the dark night. So that, that was a very hard thing to face up to, that it starts with mm-hmm. me. <laughs> and, but you talk about therapy as soul healing. Yes. Um, in fact, psychotherapy literally means soul healing. Uh, psyche and therapeia are Greek words. And so the original compound word literally means the healing of the soul, just oh. like psychology originally meant the study of the soul. Uh, then it was materialized, so to speak, into the study of the mind. They just redefined psyche, but kept the term. Mm-hmm. So psychotherapy, soul healing, to me is both a, a psychological in the earthly sense, but much more intensely in the spiritual sense. A, similar to an alcoholic working a 12-step program, mm-hmm. where I have to acknowledge my powerlessness, give my life over to a greater power because I'm powerless, and then face me. Mm-hmm. face me in, in, in my entirety, my strengths, but also the not-so-great parts of me. And that does create darkness. Um, it is a hard place to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there needs to be a level of commitment. There needs to be a willingness to go the distance, so to speak, to, to get to God, because that's ultimately every human being's goal, even if they don't know it. Union with God who has created us. And so what God is providing, according to St. John, is a process, a journey, that unfolds in stages that feel dark, because we're, he gives several different ways of looking at it. It's dark because we're facing difficult parts of ourselves, yes. It's also dark in the way that if I'm in a dark room and then I emerge into broad broad daylight, um, it's going to seem dark to me because my eyes can't accommodate the the light. Um, So it's a dark night to me, even though it actually is me increasingly walking in God who is light. and so he, John gives several different angles on what dark night means. Um, and the journey is about identifying, honestly, my attachments. And as a therapist, I would say, even taking it a little deeper, why are those attachments there? What are the earlier ones? 
John divides his dark nights into nights of sense and nights of spirit. And the way I, I read his two books on this, the night of sense is about our attachments. The night of spirit is about the deeper wounds, the deeper roots of the things that keep us disordered. Uh, that would probably need an entire podcast unto itself. Yep. So I'll leave it at that. But that's the essence of it is honestly facing, identifying what my attachments are and taking concrete steps to separate from them, opening myself to the larger work of God, who by grace is going to be removing them. Mm -hmm. And then digging deeper into why are those attachments there in the first place, taking active steps and then opening myself again to God's larger work of healing those deeper wounds. All of this is drawing us back into union. Let me put that back in terms of the mother cradling her baby. Mm -hmm. If, if I was not cradled right brain to right brain <laughs> adequately, God is trying to heal all that comes out of that and to draw me back into that embrace back into that, uh, well, God doesn't have a brain, but his, uh, his uh, emotional, connectional, relational self with that deepest part of me that ultimately wants to connect and relate and love and be loved. That is what the journey is for. And it's, I just would have to say it's, it's worth it. Um, and John says, one quote from him, we're given to a person to see virtues reward in the next world. He would occupy his intellect, memory, and will in nothing but good works, careless of danger or fatigue. Um, it's so worth it, but it is so daunting and so frightening. Most people do not take this journey, sadly. Yeah, you, you literally have to become like the little kid running through the room with your arms out. Somebody hug me. Yes. And you make yourself vulnerable. Somebody hug me. <laughs> so I'm here. Somebody yes. just give me a hug. And you know, I just think of the my children somebody running up. Yeah, somebody hold me. Um, yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it It's always a great show when we get to the end, and I don't want it to be the end. But um, but hopefully you can come back. I mean, I, I'm really excited for what you're doing. I, I definitely think um, I know that you're you're doing what God needs you to do in this day and age because your words just they're just so, they bring such healing to whoever's hearing them. I I, I know there's a need so. for this out there. I, I've been to my share of of therapists, you know, with with kids, with myself, marriage. And one thing that always frustrates me in therapy is that there's, it, it just kind of, it's truncated. There's no connection to our origin and no connection to our destiny. It's just truncated. And while good therapy makes sense within those bounds, you need that fuller truth um, that you find in the church. Yes. And so it is, it is so refreshing that you are taking the full, fullness of truth, the church and all its rich tradition with the saints and the doctors and the church fathers you're, you're bringing all of that and putting those ends on the very good scientific work that, that modern science has brought us in understanding the human mind. 
So, I mean, yeah. I, I think, I don't know, I'm, I mean, who am I to say, but I, I get the sense that you're just getting started on something really big. Um, and I know you've been working on it for a long time. Sense too. Yeah, but this is about yes. to get huge. Um, for people listening, I mentioned you were going to be teaching some courses. Can you tell us more about what, what is coming? And if, if someone wants to read more about what you're saying, um, can you give us a couple of books? But can you also tell us where to find your work and how to take your classes? Um, yes, I'll be teaching a class on the psychology of St. John of the Cross for the Avila Institute, um, which you can find online. Uh, I'll be starting January, first Thursday in January, I think okay. that's the fourth or thereabouts. And it goes for six sessions, which is just going to be a real challenge to cram all that into yeah. six sessions. Um, as far as, as, well, and oh, I should also say I'll, I'll be teaching classes later in the spring at the Loyola, Loyola Institute of Spirituality in Los Angeles. These will all be online okay. on uh, some uh, of the spirituality of St. Ignatius of Loyola, who also, close contemporary of St. John, also talks a lot about attachments and how to get rid of them, hence my interest. So I'll be teaching there as well. Okay. Um, as far as books about St. John, I would start with finding there are a couple of books of the poems of St. John of the Cross. He is known as one of the, the finest poets in the Spanish language. There are some great translations. John himself, when he got frustrated with trying to write commentaries that he was never satisfied with, would often just say, look, just read my poems. It's all there. Um, there is a book called St. John of the Cross for Beginners by Father William Menninger, um, where he attempts to paraphrase in more regular language, a lot of the sometimes difficult language that St. John uses. Uh, so if someone has just never read St. John before, um, that would be a good place to start. Um, my introduction to St. John of the Cross was actually through a musician, a Franciscan musician named John Michael Talbot, who did an album called The Lover and the Beloved with these gorgeous, stunning poems by some person named St. John of the Cross. Hmm. That was 1989. Wow. And that made me have to go find who this St. John was. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. Musically, hearing the poems would be a very powerful experience. So I would start with those kinds of resources before actually taking on something like The Ascent of Mount Carmel or The Dark Knight. Okay. Well, thank you very much, everyone. This is Dr. Jeff Thompson, and you can find his classes at uh, Dan and Stephanie Burke's Avila Institute or at the Loyola Institute of Spirituality. Did I say that right? Yes. Yeah, yes. okay. Um, all right, well, thank you very much for being here. Everyone, please check out the St. Philip Institute and our website with all of our resources for teaching the Catholic faith um, and family formation and family life, uh, faith formation and family life. Um, and we will see you next time. Thank you very much. God bless everyone.